Assalamualaikum everybody. So today I'm really excited to bring to you a very different podcast. Um, so we'll be having Anusha Shagan today, who is a lawyer. I'll be giving an introduction about her in just a minute. But before that, um, I'm going to give a bit of an introduction to our podcast. So essentially what we aim to do is highlight women in many different fields for the youth to sort of get an insight to their experiences, to their journeys in general in their specific fields. Um, so it's, what we're going to do in this podcast is we're just going to have a short conversation based on Ms. Anusha's experiences, what she's been through, and how her experience as a lawyer has been. So just a bit about who she is exactly. So she's an international human rights lawyer and a technology law expert. She's generally worked on a lot of legal and policy and reforms in human rights, international law, gender justice, and legal innovation for over 13 years. And she has several ventures that you can definitely look into if you look her up. Um, but before we go into the questions, Ms. Anusha, would you like to talk a bit about yourself or just introduce yourself better than I did? Sure, sure. Thank you for having me. Um, so I um, did my law in 2009, and that was a time in Pakistan where we were going through a war on terror. So me and a lot of my contemporaries that you might come across, we have our career foundations very deep rooted within the human rights um, field, I would say. But um, having said that, I was never very comfortable working directly with first generation human rights. So there are different kinds of um, uh, types of human rights, right? Um, so first generation human rights, relate to the right to life and, you know, something that's very, very physical and very, very, um, you know, related to survival. Um, so it was um, something that, you know, I was really struggling with at that time, um, but it was the time in the country where these were the only kind of jobs or employment opportunities that were available. But then, um, you know, we started looking at treaties and research and advocacy. Um, so that's where I sort of ventured into um, so that, you know, there was at least some kind of distance with the direct human rights abuses. Um, because, you know, for a, for a fresh graduate of law, I would say um, just to go through, you know, cases of torture, cases of enforced disappearances, that was, I, I think, quite overwhelming at that time. So that's where I found um, that I could contribute more in terms of, you know, working um, with um, not primary, but secondary research, let's put it that way. And I wasn't very comfortable with the litigation side as well when I graduated. Um, I felt like it wasn't my cup of tea because um, while individual cases are satisfi very satisfying, you know, you bring somebody to justice or you help somebody uh, get procedural or substantive justice, but like I felt it wasn't the best use of my skills. So I thought I would be more um, suited to a job that would work with reforming systems and laws rather than working on individual cases. And when you work on systems, you can have a greater impact in terms of impacting more people and for you know, more years to come. Um, so that was something that I felt I could contribute and add more value um, in. Um, having said that, you know, with with um, um, as as the years passed, I realized again that um, 
first generation and second generation human rights, such as the right to life, right, you know, um, uh, freedom of expression. These were things that, you know, we were all working on and there were people who might be able to work on it better, you know, who were actually dealing with the cases also um, when it came to direct, direct physical human rights abuses. Um, so I felt um, like I was, I wanted to go into uh, more of a system reform and more fourth generation human rights. So those are like collective rights or community rights or um, digital rights as we you know move further ahead. So um, I started looking at technology and I mean, I was always interested. I did my um, uh, ICT in O levels as well. So <clears throat> this was something I was always interested in and I felt that it was very transformative even when you see like all these businesses and, you know, all this venture capital funding that's coming in, um, they tend to uh, give a lot of money to technology startups because technology is something that can be scaled very quickly and it can have a greater impact to a lot of, uh, for like a lot of people in a very short amount of time. So I found technology to be very transformative in that way. And I started looking at different ways on how to combine my legal practice with technology. And that's how, you know, things started going ahead. And, um, you know, then there was this fourth industrial revolution going on as well. And I started looking into that. Uh, we were at the World Economic Forum at that time, and they were like very focused on this area. So that's when I started um, developing more interest on this side. And, you know, um, the rest is, as they say, you know, history. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. That sounds really interesting. Um, so you've already answered this question a bit, but would you say that there was any point at which you were very sure that you wanted to go into law? Um, because you told us how your interest in it came about, but... <laughs> Was there a certain incident or something that, uh, or a, a person maybe that made you realize that this is what you want to do because it's ex impactful in a unique way? Yeah, so uh, I knew that I never wanted to work in the corporate sector, uh, contrary to what everybody was, um, you know, aspiring to do uh, when I was in my O and A levels. So I, I did a few internships at, you know, some very big uh, companies. Um, and, and banks uh, just to get an idea of what it was like. It wasn't bad, but it was something like I always felt like a paper pusher in these kind of roles. And it wasn't very, um, there was no room for growth and it wasn't personally very satisfying as well. You know, you, you're just paper pushing on a day-to-day -day basis and you are getting a lot of money for it, but that's not something that, you know, I felt like I wanted to do. So um, there, there hasn't been any particular incident, but I would say um, because my family has been involved in government and politics for a very long time. So this was something that was always around me. Although I never felt like I would actually start working and be a part of it because I did not have um, a lot of female role models in these sectors where I could see you know, maybe I should uh, be like them. So it wasn't, um, I didn't have like a lot of inspiration. Although my, even women in my family, they've been, you know, uh, in highly educated and been doing like legal work and uh, appointed at, you know, very um, high level positions, but it wasn't like, I, I didn't see it as a cultural thing. So I, I kind of felt lost at that time. 
Um, but um, there wasn't any particular incident, but I knew I didn't want to go into, into the corporate side. I knew I did not want to. <clears throat> um, but the only two options available at the time were either corporate law or maybe do something with the environment, for example. That's the only, you know, um, voluntary charity work or um, any anything related to the civil society that you could work on at that time. Um, so I felt like a bit stuck. And I think um, in order to get to the government route or like into these kind of uh, the, the public sector jobs, um, law was obviously the most suited, um, you know, stepping stone towards this journey, I would say. So um, I did my LLB, um, even though, you know, I, I did apply to other places as well, but I knew this is what I wanted to do. Uh, ultimately, I was not planning to go into litigation or work in a law firm. That was I was very certain about. And I found that out, you know, it just got reconfirmed. Uh, even when I started doing these things, because it was just not my cup of tea. And I feel like a lot of people do feel that way. It's not, it's not something that and there's no entitlement that oh we can't work in these structures it's not that it's just that um we've been taught a very different way on how you know these structures work and i felt like there was so much disconnect between what we were taught and what was actually happening that you know i didn't feel like there was any um, anything I could contribute or I didn't know how to bridge that gap at that time. So when I started working in non-traditional careers in law, that's when I really felt like, you know, there's this huge gap that can be bridged. <clears throat> that's great. Um, yeah, and I want to point out something you said about there, not, there being a lack of female figures in this field specifically. And I think that's so important. And Honestly, that's a part of why you're here today, just because even you going into this sector when there was a lack of female figures, um, specifically in law, is very important because I'm sure now, um, say that you had mentors when you were younger, but definitely, like, I'm sure there are people that look up to you now. And I think that's the most important part of all of this is that we inspire people along the way. Um, but thank you for sharing. So the next question I had for you is, what exactly was the very first project that you did in relation to law and of what importance is it to you today? So, um, I mean, there's so many, I wouldn't be able to, you know, do justice if I point to just one, but um, I think um, the work that I'm doing right now, and if it has to relate to something that I was doing back then, um, so, like I said, I did study law, economics, computing in my uh, before law. So, I developed this library project uh, for my ICT um, O level uh, exam. And this was basically, you know, automatizing all this research, like you can see a lot of books here. So this was something that I always grew up in. And I felt like, you know, we needed a faster process to, you know, go through these. And that's when I, um, I was encouraged to, you know, um, work on this library project. And that's what I developed. And that's when I learned a bit of, you know, um, like, a little technical uh, details into technology as well. So that's that's something, you know, that was very transformative. And I knew that this is something that I wanted to do. And now that I think about it, the work that we're doing now, it's very much similar to, you know, automatizing processes and digitalizing a lot of these um, large archives and uh, 
making databases. So um, the, I, 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 it doesn't like necessarily relate to law, but I think it was something that I found very innovative and uh, something that I wanted to incorporate in whatever I was doing. Um, in law specifically, um, I wouldn't um, exactly say like we were given projects, but um, even in school, you know, we were we were only like part of uh, MUNs or model United Nations or, you know, speeches and debates and that kind of thing. So we didn't really have like clinics at that time where we could actually work on real life cases. But right after law, um, like I said, it was a time when these were the only kind of jobs that were available in relation to um, human rights. So um, my first job related to that was uh, with the Ministry of Law. I was a researcher and we were working on treaties and um, Pakistan's commitments to treaties. Basically, you have to sign the treaties and then the government has to report back on the progress to um, whoever the organization or the country that the treaty is being signed with. So we were fortunate at that time that Pakistan um, signed seven core human rights treaties at that time. And although they were, you know, um, financially motivated as well, because they got economic benefits in response to signing these treaties from the European Union trade benefits. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we managed to do that. And, you know, we tried to incorporate those within our local systems as well. So that was, I think, a really important um, thing that happened at that time. And, you know, I can't be more grateful. And from then on, obviously, it's um, um, we've, we've, we, the government has signed uh, more treaties and we've even, you know, part of the SDGs now. At that time, most they were called MDGs, so I'm that old. That's lovely, yeah. And I think the main thing that I take away from this is basically, so I think often for me at least, because I'm not as experienced with law for sure, but it's definitely something that I've looked into. Um, but the bridge between helping, say, the lower class and others, as opposed to just practicing law at a more surface level, I, I think that that relates to you very well. And that's a completely different side um, that I've actually have not seen before. So even in relation to technology, I don't think that there's many platforms that relate technology and law um, this deeply as much as you do. And I think that's really interesting, especially for people that are getting into law. So for everyone watching that is interested in law, I think this would be a really great conversation. Um, but the next question is related to one of your projects. Um, so what exactly led you to establish the Legal Informatics Committee at the um, Lahore High Court Bar Association? So um, you see the Lahore High Court Bar Association or the Lahore Bar or High Court Bar. So this is one of the, if not the oldest uh, and biggest bar in Asia. So we have about over 150,000 registered and licensed lawyers. So ye, this is India time, so you know, it's it's been there, it's been around and there are a lot of people here. Um, so that's why establishing a committee in these um, organizations and entities is very important because not only do you, you can contribute to these, like these are all pro bono, these are not paid positions, right? You're just a licensed lawyer and you get to be uh, part of these committees. So this is a way to give back to your own community of lawyers. And also because lawyers also need an updated training on these kind of things, um, because otherwise 
um, there is no formal continuing professional development uh, in Pakistan. There's no like formal process. Everybody's trying to do whatever they can. There's no initiative from the government or the judiciary or the um, law firms or the bar councils, I would say. So everybody's trying to do whatever they can. And through these committees, you know, they try to focus on these are thematic committees, right? So they focus on one particular area of law. So initially, like I said, we were the first people to establish the International Human Rights Law Committee and the um, humanitarian committees. So, you know, moving on from that, the informatics committee was recently uh, established like a couple of years ago. And <clears throat> this was something um, I mean, work is still in progress. I wouldn't say, you know, we've done a lot of projects under it, but um, it was very important to establish these kind of things so that, you know, we could at least keep up with the 21st century that we were in. And I think the pandemic really helped accelerate a lot of these things in terms of, you know, how you're supposed to work from home, um, e-justice, um, you know, all these like processes that can happen online. So this was something that we really wanted to push forward. So um, just to sort of give you like, like a quick um, differentiation is, um, so legal tech basically relates to how lawyers do their job and how lawyers deliver um, uh, their services and how they are paid. Um, you know, it, it's like between lawyers and clients or and the lawyers in the courts, obviously, because that's where they take the client's case. And technology law is something related to, you know, whether it's cybercrime or whether it's IP laws or e-commerce laws. And justice tech is related to how the judiciary or the judicial offices or courts are delivering um, their service, which is essentially justice to the clients or litigants. So these are like tiny differences, but it all kind of ties up as, you know, uh, in the form of law and technology. So uh, with this committee and other committees, this is what lawyers essentially um, do through the bar councils. These are, these are like completely voluntary positions, but they impact a lot of people at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously learning is important along the way especially with changing times I think you highlighted that pretty well lawyers obviously you have like a level of education that you need to pass but something like when you're dealing with something so important as um in cases such as like crime cyber crime or even like other things it's always important to progress change with that because I think as time goes on there's many things that have changed especially over COVID um so the next question I have is when you started your journey or like along your journey, was there ever a certain female figure you look up to or that you looked up to as an inspiration or a mentor in your journey within law? And just sort of how has this figure helped you over the years? Um, like I said earlier, there weren't a lot of people. Uh, everybody, of course, um, says, you know, there's Justice Nasra Iqbal, there's uh, Asma Jahangir, who was a human rights lawyer at that time. But these were like very, like, you know, very singular figures. So you can't really associate them to a whole culture where, you know, you feel inspired. So, you know, my my eldest aunt, my my dad's eldest sister, she was a tort lawyer as well. So, so torts are basically civil wrongs. And she was uh, Asma Jangir's contemporary. And she studied abroad as well. Um, so, you know, she was always around and always encouraging and pushing. But at the end of the day, um, 
like they also felt like you know it was legal practice and it was going to be traditional legal practice for everybody like you know you become a lawyer get a license go to court start taking on cases and then you can figure out your specialization but you know like i said i did not want to go into the traditional legal structures at all so while i had you know people around me it wasn't something i felt like was connecting with me at that time um uh, of course now we have so many women and you know i i'm so grateful to them for opening so many doors for me you know it's it's just um it's not just my own contemporaries it's somebody you know high in uh, somebody higher up as well and even you know people younger than you who like yourself who you know who are trying to highlight the work that we do because um the problem with pakistani lawyers is that they're not allowed to advertise themselves so any kind of face time or any kind of you know um highlighting that we can get we you know we're very grateful for that at the end of the day so um very very grateful i wouldn't say again like i wouldn't say there are a lot of um, people um in higher positions that you know uh, i've been around but my contemporaries have been very helpful in that regard you know when if somebody figures something out they make sure that you know they at least um open the doors for other people so that there are more opportunities and i try to you know pay that forward in whatever way i can as well that makes sense um thank you for highlighting that and i think as like the co-president of oris raj this is a conversation that i've had like with our team as well and we actually developed a project um related to justice that will be launching soon in terms of um making people more aware of the laws in this country because i feel like even me personally like there's a lot that i'm just not aware of um maybe because as a lack of awareness as a lack of what you the rights that you have as a, a pakistani over here specifically even like as a woman in pakistan um i think that's something that definitely needs to be highlighted so definitely i feel like the next generation is definitely working towards that and that's really just helping progress forward um but next question is so you have worked a lot between like tech and law so i wanted to ask how did you sort of come to unite the two you talked a bit about you know how tech was important to you when you were a student um but sort of when did it come to you that uniting the two would make sense or like there's a certain need for that um so um, like i said um tech has a scale that can be accelerated very quickly right it can be it's very very scalable so if you if you're employing like technology tools or platforms or even processes that can be automatized you know it's going to have um an impact um that traditional processes generally won't so that is something that i wanted to do first and foremost you know digitalize whatever we have digitize and digitalize so not just like turn um physical paper copies into a digital format or books into online researchable information but also digitalize in the sense that you know you develop platforms you develop um um uh, automated processes so that everything so that there's like the least bit of human involvement and everything happens organically and you don't have to you know um be there all the time that's that's the whole idea that you need to be self reliant 
and you need to rely less on people because the problem with the legal um, or the justice sector is that it's it's slow it's it can be expensive because there are costs are very uncertain and it's it can be quite complex if you don't know what you're doing so um you know this is this is something that tech um aims to address but having said that technology is not always the solution to everything like we're not advocating for tech solutionism here um the things that technology can do if you figure out a process or a better innovative way to do those things that can happen without technology as well right so you just have to think of a solution like for example just to give you a small example when people said ke um yeah tech is fine and all that but can it download food I mean, it it can't really do that, but you can figure out based on how to do that, right? You can develop an app that's tech, but there's there's a process the which aims to achieve the same thing is the fact that you're not cooking for yourself. Somebody else is managing that, and somebody else is delivering that to you, and you get to eat at the end of the day. So the aims are the same, but you know, it's not like it's not all tech. It's just like a process or a tool that helps you get there. so um technology for me was very transformative i mean i was even so impressed when i um discovered my first laser printer right it was just because like i said when i was doing my o level project um i had a, i had an inkjet printer at that time and it was like a thousand pages like with all the te- um technical logs and what not and i had to like watch each page like out of like i think about um Three or four thousand pages. I had to watch each page print out separately, and that was just like a crazy uh, thing that was uh, <laughs> that that I had to go through. So even when I, you know, discovered my first laser printer, I thought it was so transformative. And as 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 I discovered like more technologies and you know um, uh, tech tools and platforms and better processes. it was just i felt like everything was going to change and it was going to be so transformative so i think like the difference between you and i uh, in in terms of adoption of adoption of technology is that i am not um uh, a digital native uh, i am still a digital migrant right so i have seen life before the internet and how we've come into this so we've not only done things um without the internet and without a lot of technologies we've also seen a transform that is why uh, people like us like millennials and elder millennials we are very good at identifying problems while you know your generation might be better at identifying solutions but you know you can't identify a solution until you don't know what the problem is so we've seen that transformation that's why it's been you know very transformative and you know it's it's been a surreal experience for us i would say in that regard so <clears throat> yeah in terms of you know combining these things um we've come so far now that you know we can even talk about using blockchain to address the issue of statelessness you know that's that's something that's um, uh, we've been looking at um you know blockchain is a is a very sophisticated form of encryption where you can send um people's digital identities and you can send them you know um aid uh, in terms of financial aid or you know any other kind of information uh, especially in banking processes or somewhere uh, like i said stateless in statelessness you know people do not have 
their identity documents on them and it becomes really hard. So the UN has been using blockchain to address the issue of statelessness. That's like a very high level use of uh, law and technology. Um, then again, like just to give you like small examples. Um, so we developed an app where um, uh, we thought that people would ask queries related to law and, you know, they'd get responses, but at the end of the day, it was not working out for victims of domestic violence because it wasn't anonymous or confidential and it would have mean that she would have to reveal her identity. And that's something that you can't do in um, social media platforms as well, right? So they don't offer that kind of um, fiduciary relationship that lawyers uh, tend to. So, you know, tech wasn't working out with that, but when we asked our technical guy, um, you know, is there something that we can work around or is this something that we can address? He said, yeah, we can add an anonymous feature. And we were completely blown away by that. We did not know that that could be a possibility as well. So it's it's just these little things from big things to little things, you know, and a lot of uh, things in between that we've been doing, um, you know, whether it's e-justice. So e-justice also, you know, and, uh, entails like, submitting your documents to court in an online manner and a lot of people you know have been doing that with uh, whatsapp as well why not uh, but then again you know the law has certain requirements as well you know where you need <clears throat> to see at what exactly <clears throat> at what time exactly was this notice sent to a particular party <clears throat> in order for them to be able to respond. So WhatsApp is not like the right solution for that, right? You either need to have a courier who can actually um, point out the exact time, or you need to have a more sophisticated form of uh, technology, which can, um, you know, like a QR code or maybe blockchain, which can actually point out if something has been read by the other person, read and received by the other person so that they're not able to deny it later. Um, so this is just something, you know, that's, that's uh, been happening. So, yeah. That's really interesting. And what you mentioned about there being digital natives and digital immigrants, I think that's generally a new term to me, but I think that's really interesting because again, like law and tech, you know, I think those are sort of also bridging the gap um, between the two generations now, um, because I like, I feel like my generation is very much sort of tech focused and I think because we were born into it that's just what we know to begin with um those of us that are privileged enough to have access to it um but I think that's a really good way to approach it and I think it's really interesting because there are a few platforms I'm going to talk specifically about Pakistan because I think that's most relevant to us and the audience but um I think there are a few platforms but there's a lot that we still are not aware of so I think just this podcast itself, I'm sure, will reach a lot of people and there's going to be, I think the first step to everything is awareness and that's definitely what we'll be establishing through this. Um, but talking about another one of your projects, so you led Porting the Law for a while um, and you mentioned about how you were deeply involved in legal analysis to some extent. So what disparities did you discover or explore along the way within gender-related law while you were leading Porting the Law? Right, so um, I wouldn't exactly say leading, but yes, managing the day-to-day. -day. 
So the Korean law was founded by um, uh, my senior lawyer, Temur Malik, in around 2015, although I'm sure he'd been working on it for a very long time. And, you know, he was looking for people to maybe do research and, you know, kind of like have a legal repository of all these, all, all the information that we could, you know, provide for free, perhaps, um, because like I said, we are, if we are in a privileged position to be able to, um, you know, provide legal consultancies or legal information um, pro bono, on a pro bono basis or free of cost, then, you know, uh, we should. Um, because at the end of the day, this is what matters to people. Like, you know, there can be a hundred different organizations doing the same thing, and yet people would still need a lot of handholding. So this is just, you know, an attempt from our end to address these kind of uh, issues. Although, you know, the more the merrier, I would say. And even if we had like a thousands of these in Pakistan, they would still not be enough. So uh, it started out as a legal publication, but it, you know, um, started developing into much more than just, you know, uh, a publication or a blog. We started doing events, we started doing trainings, um, we started having, you know, internship programs and fellowships, and, you know, started training other, other lawyers as well to take the message forward and to, uh, to develop these kind of skills that they could also incorporate within their own circles. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's been uh, quite a journey, uh, I would say. Um, within the organization itself, our day-to-day, -day, of course, involves a lot of legal analysis. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have, you know, access to some of the best legal minds in the country. And it's just been a privilege to, you know, get legal information from them for our publication. And it's, you know, uh, completely free for the whole world to read. And uh, like I said earlier, lawyers in Pakistan are not allowed to advertise themselves. So it's not just hurts lawyer in terms of, you know, getting access to clients, but also for litigants to see who is an expert in a particular subject matter and who they should reach out to, um, should they have a legal issue. So this was, you know, this worked both ways. We were just happy to provide a platform and help people with, um, you know, their publication. That's lovely. Um, yeah, I think like, it's a very important project specifically, like I said, because you're providing awareness to a lot of people that might not have it. Um, but so uh, another question related to what you've worked on. So having authored the legislative brief on the right to information law in Pakistan, what gaps did you feel or did you discover are most prominent, specifically say in regards to women and how can we as a nation overcome these? Just I know it's like a heavy question, but uh, whatever you do. Yeah, so this was uh, one of the things that I worked on. We worked on like, um, you know, a, a bunch of different laws. So this was something that I specifically worked on for parliament. Um, and I, I, I think one of the major gaps with this particular law was that um, there's a lot of, you know, politics involved. Uh, one party would want to have something, the other party wouldn't want to have something, you know, um, if, if it's the right to information, it's not just, um, um, it's not just anybody's, you know, entitled to it, to actually have to file a request if you want information from a particular government department on um, their processes, um, it kind of does not apply uh, fully to the judiciary or the army, so that's, you know, we're, we're stuck there. <clears throat> 
Um, but otherwise, you know, you can obviously file a request for information on how a government department um, is using certain resources or whether, uh, you know, if there was an issue that they had taken up or a local government um, um, project or campaign that we're working on, you can ask for the financials and you can ask for accountability and you can ask for information generally. So <clears throat> this is um, something that, you know, I, I felt like it, it, it was awarded one of the best laws by the Center for Research and Democracy in Canada when like we were going through the draft. However, like with consistent amendments and all these government changes, everybody kind of watered it down to um you know something that was just more suited to the government rather than the people who were trying to ask for information um as far as other laws are concerned specifically related to gender and women yeah we've worked on very different things um not i wouldn't exactly call ourselves activists but more like advocates so a lot of advocacy efforts have been involved in different laws um just to name a few you know we've also worked on and and i in fact i keep um, um emphasizing on this because this is something that i did not personally work on but my interns did so this was something related to the kandil baloch case and the government was looking for resources on how you know they could um, hold accountable the family member who had <clears throat> uh, murdered her essentially and how you know how to bring them into the um accountability sphere or bring him to justice without having the family pardon him so this is uh, something you know that um, like my team worked on and i'm very proud of that for you know doing that um other than that you know we worked on like a bunch of different uh, things so um like i said it was more of an advocacy effort rather than taking up individual cases or you know doing full-time legal activism although I, I i would call it legal activism in a way but it was more of an advocacy effort when it comes to these laws because we feel like our skills are better suited at you know um lobbying I, I i wouldn't even like use the term lobbying because it can have negative connotations but you know reaching out to the government uh, reaching out to the judiciary um, as as uh, friends of the court, as amicus curiae, you know, where, where they're looking for technical expertise on certain things such as, you know, uh, fintech law or related to online harassment or defamation, you know, that kind of thing. And they're looking for people who are familiar with law and technology and legal technologists who can come in and uh, guide the courts or the government. So we've been part of a lot of these consultancies. Um, you know, whether it's Law and Justice Commission looking on how to implement the e-justice system, whether it's uh, Digital Pakistan looking to implement, again, the e-justice um, system in Pakistan. And a lot of these things got uh, accelerated during the pandemic. So, um, you know, a lot of work has been done lately in this regard. That sounds great. Thank you so much for sharing all of those experiences. I think getting an insight is really important just to sort of see how it works essentially for a woman like yourself in law. Um, and I think this is a very, very unique approach to it. So with that, we'll move on to the last question, which is what advice do you have for young girls looking to get into law? Um, so I, I get to speak to a lot of young women um, who are also, you know, in the same boat trying to navigate with what their area of specialization would be. So I would 
suggest, you know, not worry about that at all. Um, I did my specialization in tech law 10 years after my uh, LLB and I only got a master's more recently. So, you know, I was using all this time to actually work on the things that I wanted to work on, explore the industry, explore the market, see what can be done, where I can add value and where I can contribute the most and what um, is is, uh, interesting to me also, what I find engaging. So it took me like a whole decade to, you know, uh, do that. So do not worry about graduate ki and I want to go for my master's or bar or whatever. So do not worry about that. The LLB itself is a vocational degree in itself. You, If you need to do that, you can do that. You know, find clinics, find um, internships. Uh, you will have to work for free for a lot of people initially, because this is what, what law is, you know, getting exposure is very, very important. It, it, it is a bit exploitative in that regard also. It's not like the corporate sector, um, but, you know, if you are able to do that, you know, that, that would be best. However, you know, look for people who are trying to make it worth your while. Um, just try to focus on transferable skills. Um, you know, like if you're good at research, I was good at research, I was good at reading, and that has still helped, that still helps me to this day. Um, so work on those transferable skills. I was good at remote work, you know, that I I've put that up at the top of my CV in terms of you know what 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 my best skills are. So I'm good at remote work, I'm good at research, I'm good at speed reading. I have developed um, this habit of commercial awareness and get reading commercial awareness updates, which means that whatever legal issue I'm working on, does this have an impact on the industry and what, what the financials and the economics of that would be like? So these are like some uh, communication is of course very important if you're trying to become a lawyer but like I said I was an introvert too and that's why the whole um, you know tech spaces and these kind of platforms work better for me that way and I I feel like I'm able to communicate better when I'm writing or when I'm you know um, not speaking or like not having a lot of face time for example so if, if you're good at communication find out what kind of you know way of communication you are actually uh, good at so that you know it's it's worth your while too um and and for women specifically you know you will really have to develop a thick skin when you're if you're trying to join this profession you know there's literally um there, there's a lot of casual sexism there's a lot of um you know something that happens on a day-to-day basis that you might not be very comfortable with it really pushes you out of your comfort zone Uh, I mean I read about um, a lot of gruesome things in my first year of law when I in in my criminal law class and I didn't even think that these things could be possible you know like very very gruesome things so you will really have to um, have the bandwidth to you know read about these things, learn about these things, actually work on these things and people with like very, very, very serious cases that sometimes you might not be very comfortable, you know, engaging directly with. But, um, you know, you will have to explore all these things first in order to figure out what what your area of expertise might become down the road. So I would just say, you know, just like keep keep your thresholds like a bit expansive. 
Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I think like these words are definitely going to be very important for any young woman, young girl that is looking to get into law and specifically hearing about your work, your experiences. Um, I think on a more personal level makes it a lot more worthwhile just because you can read a lot of things online, but really having that conversation with someone helps you relate to them. Um, and I think that's exactly what we were able to do today. So thank you so, so much for joining us today. It was really, really great having you on board. Same here. Thank you for having me and good luck with your projects. Perfect. Thank you so much.